Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest today is Yorgos Kallas. He's an ecological economist from Greece. He is an ECREA research professor at ICTA at the Autonomous University of Barcelona, where he teaches political ecology. He's one of the principal advocates of the theory of degrowth. He's published many things, but what we'll be spending most of our conversation today is on his work called Limits, Why Mathis Was Wrong and Why Environmentalists Should Care, and his other work, Degrowth. It's a real pleasure to have you on the deep dive with me. Thank you, Philip. So this has been a conversation a long time in the making because I remember I reached out to you last year, actually, maybe almost a year from this time. I believe it was in April because I followed you on Twitter and I was really excited about your work. And this is an episode that is a lesson in perseverance because we were finally able to make this happen. <laughs> and, you know, I, I really admire your thinking. And I feel these types of conversations that really ask us to ask hard questions about how our world is structured and the systems that we live under are critical if we're going to create a what I call and what many call um, viable futures, always stressing the plural. So with that kind of extra intro to the intro, I want to give you an opportunity to just explain this notion of limits, because mm -hmm. I think to many people, they'll see that there's a little bit of a paradox in that idea about how we think about the earth and limits. And I want to give you an opportunity to just share yeah. a little bit about that before we go even deeper. Yeah, I mean, the way I start the book and my, my core argument is that um, our relationship to this notion, to the very world of limits, is a little bit uh, paradoxical. And I'm trying to resolve this paradox. So on the one hand, especially for Americans, you have a lot of uh, slogans that they are like, there are no limits, push yourself beyond your limits. There are no limits but your imagination. The sky is not the limit. You know, there are, there are all these logos that you see when you go to the gym, when you buy a self-help book. A constant negation of limits and the idea that limits is something negative that we should overcome. At the same time, well, there is another relationship to limits, which is the fear of limits. And uh, we will constantly, especially in our days, uh, hear these uh, predictions of doom or our planet is doomed, uh, our societies are doomed, our civilization is at its end point, we've crossed irreversible limits and the end is nine. No? Um, and there is this, this double relationship with limits. So in my book, I try to resolve uh, uh, the tension between these two sides of limits. Normally, within my field of environmental thought, it's considered to be the optimist and the pessimistic view to our relationship with the environment. The optimist is, you know, technology, economy, markets can let us overcome the limits we are facing and resolve environmental problems. And the supposed pessimist one is like, no, we can't do that. The environment is going to punish us. Nature is going to punish us. No? And what I argue in the book, and I think that's a little bit, might be novel, might not be novel, but I think it is a little bit novel, is that I'm saying these two sides of the same coin, and uh, they are a very particular discourse and understanding of limits uh, that appears uh, at the very early stages of capitalism. 
And uh, it's a discourse that, uh, on the one hand, it claims that we don't have enough and there is a limit on what we can have and nature is limited. And on the other hand, it's constantly uh, mobilizing uh, our efforts to overcome these supposed limits through limitless growth. And I argue that this particular relationship of limits and limitless growth is uh, very specific to the capitalist system, which is a system that, on the one hand, needs constant expansion and constant growth. And on the other hand, it constantly also reproduces scarcity. So while the economy keeps growing and growing, there is always poverty and it's never resolved. So it has to be justified. So on the one hand, it's justified by the idea that we have limits. On the other hand, these limits supposedly mobilize us. We need more to resolve poverty. We need more to invest on cleaning the energy system, etc. And it's this spell or myth of limits and scarcity within capitalism that I want to break with the book. And, you know... I'm smiling because when I was reading the book and making my notes, toward the bottom of my notes, I specifically want to address this kind of cult of self-help and how that is so tied to capitalism, especially in the American model, Mm -hmm. which I think is it's taken on a life of its own. Yeah relative to what we know of as, you know, general global capitalism. Because living, when I talk to friends all around the world, even those who are in, you know, similarly capitalist societies, the sort of enthusiasm and optimism around this idea of conquering mm. the world yeah. is is such an American con- conceit. Yeah. And even when people are well-meaning, it drives so much of our thinking that it's really hard to divorce the structure of the market economy in the United States from this Mm. philosophical overlay of Mm. just blind-eyed optimism, even as you exploit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, my work, I started from, as you said, and I'm an ecological economist and I started from the environment, but through this book, I came to think more and more about culture. So one thing I came to think about is like, where, where does this discourse start? And it obviously starts with the colonization of the Americas. I was discussing with, uh, with people from the arts, my book, and then it occurred to me because I, in the book, I refer, I have vignettes from movies, no? and I have some Hollywood movies. And then it rained on me and it came and I saw it clearly that this myth right now globally is reproduced by Hollywood, no? And it's actually the structurals of the movies, which is something I point a little bit in the book, but I could have developed more. But it's the structure of Hollywood movies and the structure of, you know, if you read a book, how do you write a plot for Hollywood? You know, I read that at some point. How do you write a screenplay, no? And it's always a hero that faces a limit. They tell you by one third of the movie, you should have defined what's the obstacle to the hero, you know? Then the hero fights against this obstacle, this limit, we might call it. The end and the happy end of the movie, which Hollywood always has happy ends compared to European movies now. There is always a happy end is when the limit, when the the hero beats this limit, overcomes it. Normally it's it's the threat of death. No, someone wants to kill the hero, and the hero kills this villain or survives. No, so there is there is always a story of overcoming and limit as the liberation, no, as the success, as the happiness. No, and you can think that Hollywood. Where is Hollywood? Hollywood is in the far west. It's at the very end of colonizing process of the Americas, and it's also the place where the majority of movies that at least my generation grew up with were precisely this type of movies, were westerns. No, the Anglos. 
were limited by the Indians, who are the, sorry, the Native Americans, while they were conquering the Far West. No, they were threatened for a while. They could have been killed, but then they killed <laughs> the natives. And so there is a historical process which has become like a hegemonic culture. And it's a hegemonic culture. It's very strong in the U.S. I've lived two years in the U.S. and I appreciated many things. Eh? So I'm not someone who is going to bust the U.S. But I'm saying this part of it is very strong. And for someone who comes from abroad, you see it very much. This supposed positivity of always beating some kind of limit and overcoming your own limits, it's, it's very strong in the U.S. But I think through the globalization of the Hollywood cultural uh, industry, it's everywhere right now. So I wouldn't say that it's purely American. And of course, it didn't start from... Americans, it starts from Europeans colonizing uh, Absolutely. the rest of the world, no? Absolutely. And I often make the argument, again, I'm not the only one who makes this argument, that culture is one of America's most powerful exports. Mm-hmm. It informs the way in which people think about their world, even if they've never been here. Yeah, They have this notion of, even if you say, California, mm-hmm. people can literally see the Hollywood sign, yeah. right? They see Beverly Hills and Rodeo Drive and palm trees. You mentioned New York, they mm-hmm. see the Statue of Liberty or Empire mm-hmm. State Building or what have you. These are kind of global symbols. And I was listening to a talk a couple of weeks ago and they had a historian, David Blight, who is a wonderful thinker and writer. And he made this observation that I think that's a nice add-on to yours that American movies, Hollywood industry, also loves this idea of redemption. This notion that even the person who is the anti-hero can be redeemed through conquering some limit, doing some action, which really gives you the happy ending Mm -hmm. that you talked about. That there's this sort of neat bow Mm -hmm. that comes at the end in the process. And I want to use this idea of a neat bow to introduce complexity mm-hmm. that when I was reading your books and kind of wrestling with the ideas, they do live in a world that is filled with complexity and paradox, understanding mm-hmm. how ideas that might seem to be opposing can live in the same space. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think about what really capitalism does is reduce complexity through markets to assets. Mm-hmm. You know, we look out at a forest and we don't see a living, breathing ecosystem that is complex. We see mm-hmm. timber, mm-hmm. right? And the closer we can get to maximizing the notion of something complex as asset, the more powerful it is. So we take something maybe potentially limitless Mm-hmm. and limit its use. It's not enough for it to support thousands of organisms in a, in a complex system. It's more important for it to be stripped mm-hmm. into two-by-fours to build houses, for example. Yeah. So how do you square all of this with complexity and simplicity as we think about limits and also introducing this idea around degrowth? Yeah. There are two things there. I mean, it's complicated because the terminology I use um, might show that I'm against complexity. But let me say that I agree with the way you put it in the diagnosis. I think capitalist, more than everything, is a system that um, reduces everything to what political economists call its exchange value, no? how much it can trade for something else. No? 
So the idea of turning everything into commodity and more including ourselves as uh, wage workers, but also most of the things we use, turning them into commodities, like something we can buy with the salary we get for our wage work, then we buy things. So everything is reduced to its commodity value. And then the, um, the forest, as you say, instead of seeing the multiple functions and the complexity of a forest, the only way we come to appreciate it is, is as its value in dollars. And then there are even environmental scientists who take so much for granted that this is how capitalism works, that they say the only way to save forests right now is to try to give them some higher value that captures also other things that they are doing that they are outside of the market. By doing that, we might protect them. But I'm skeptical of this idea because I think we become as environmentalists accomplices to this process of turning everything into its dollar equivalent or euro equivalent, which it's a thing is problematic and it's part of the problem. So on that hand, I am an advocate of what uh, we call the incommensurability of values, like that we have to really treat the different values things have for us, the social values, and treat them differently, not try to collapse this complexity into a singular comparable uh, money value. That's one thing. Now, in my book, The On Limits, I make, I would say, kind of a case and a call for simplicity, for radical simplicity, for simplifying our lives. And there is like a different argument that I'm taking, that the argument I'm taking is that in current capitalist society, we are saturated and overwhelmed by the immense number of choices that they are given to us, potential choices, mostly consumer choices, you know, it's like that you enter in the supermarket and there are a hundred different things you can buy, you know, that uh, you might want to change the house, you are forced to change the house every now and then if you are someone who rents, it's not like it used to be that you live in the same house your whole life now, and then I'm in the process right now because <laughs> my landlord asked me to live, so now, you know, I have every night to pass and see like thousands of flats, it's like, a, it's nightmare, no? But this choice has passed everywhere, no? In the dating scene, you no? Know, that you, you see, like, different people you can date, you know? Like, it's an immense and uh, debilitating uh, choice that capitalism offers. And it's also theorized within capitalism, you know? And this is, these are, there are certain theories with which I take issue in my book. So the idea, for example, that I take issue within economics the idea that there is an opportunity cost, no? that whatever you're doing has the cost of not doing hundreds of other things you could do at the same time. So there is a whole ideology there that, you know, we want like million of things, million of things are on offer on us, and uh, we're trying to maximize and do as many things as possible out of these million things that they are out there for us. That's the ideology and logic of economics, and it's also the kind of life that we are forced to live. I wouldn't call it complex in the sense of complexity, but I would say that it's it's an overwhelming, um, debilitating um, offer of options. Not complex. I don't think it's really complex, but it's overwhelming. So against that, I'm putting the value of self-limitation and of simplifying your life, radically simplifying your life. And the metaphor I use in the book is that of, of a piano uh, because I took that from a movie I saw, The Legend of 1900, where, I mean, I'm, I don't have to say the whole scene, but the, at some point the piano player says that, you know, like, if you gave me an infinite piano with infinite keys, I couldn't make any music, any, any nice music, you know? You give me a piano that has a limited number of keys, and then I can really make an infinite music, you know? I can make all sorts of, of nice compositions. I don't need an infinite piano to make infinite music. I make zero nice music with an infinite piano. 
And I think this captures a little bit the situation we are right now. We need to put limits also in our personal life. So against the self-help doctrine that you have to overcome your limits. Uh, in my book, I argue for the opposite, which is not like my idea. It's, I think, the whole idea of psychoanalysis is that, which is like to find your limits now. I understand like what are your limits and how you can bound and have a reasonably and decent and satisfying for you life without being overwhelmed by the idea that you have to do more and more and that there are so many things that you don't have and you can still get, you know? You know, I want to like jump into that a little bit more because I think it also highlights, again, a culture piece in that the kind of in a, in a Western way of thinking, and I'll kind of expand that away from the United States because I think these type of ideas and ideologies around you know, and I'll gender this specifically as man because that was the language that was used at the time. You know, you have this notion of man as machine. And as we've extrapolated that model, as we've kind of gone into an industrial society and thinking about our time and all the things you alluded to, now we think of ourselves as processing units similar to computers. So whereas we might've used the mechanical notion like a watch, we're now able to multitask and, you know, if we could just get a little bit more bandwidth, we use all these notions of ourselves as computing processing units, mm -hmm. which I think speaks to what you've explained so beautifully that, of course, we can process limitless options because we have limitless processing time or all we need to do oh. is maybe get a different tool, right? Like, or mm -hmm. use a get a different Mac and it will help, you know, or upgrade our phone with this new app that will help me be more productive. So we've tied all of these ideas around movement and always being on, mm -hmm. which I think speaks to this challenge in terms of really being able to do that. Cause I'm skeptical that our brains and our hearts work in that way. Mm -hmm. So what I'm leading to is how do we change the metaphors that we're using? Because I think if one were to say, oh, you need to simplify, that brings up another counter argument about, oh, well, you're perhaps on the simplest form, you're lazy or you're not motivated to this hustle culture that, again, is a very strong American conceit. So there's a lot in there, but I'm curious about mm -hmm. how do we build or can we build better metaphors and stories yeah. that more support this counterpoint of radical simplicity? Yeah, I'm not sure about the words are to be found. And I think also an important switch is to switch from the personal and the individual to the collective, no? So I like words like uh, conviviality or words or commons, words that capture that this is something that we have to do together. Well, I mean, you mentioned an app and I thought uh, the funny thing that there are all these apps now that they're kind of forcing you to to limit yourself, you know, that you put like, uh, you cannot stop looking at your email and then you put these apps that block your email at a particular time of the day, you know, or that they let you stay on yourself for only one or two hours, you know, and then you put them and then you try to overcome them you know, and you try to, <laughs> to fool your own, uh, you know, limits. But I think... I think I, I wouldn't see, I, again, I, I wouldn't see, I understand what you're saying about using a, perhaps better words, but what I want to emphasize is that I don't see like this limitation as 
as killing motivation or as killing our creativity. On the contrary, I would say that they are the way to unleash our creativity. That's why I use the metaphor of the piano. So the pianist needs a limited piano in order to make good music. And I think right now we are overwhelmed by all this dispersion of all sorts of different things going around that they don't really let us be creative. I don't think we are writing better academics books than they were written 200 years ago. I don't think we read more. I think we, we probably read less. I don't think on any of these uh, matters of creativity, we have improved. Uh, we don't hear, we don't get better music. We don't get better movies. So, and, and I think you hear this also from the master of the art. So it's not something that uh, it's only an environmentalist saying. You hear them, if you, if you hear people who are good at what they are doing and they are creative, it tells you that they found a way also to bound themselves, to limit and not do hundreds of things and, and find the time to do what they like more doing and what they, they most enjoy and what they, they feel they are more creative. So I think bounding ourselves and limiting ourselves and uh, saying no to this overwhelming offer that comes from the outside is the secret doing more. Now, I, I think a more serious critique to that is that, okay, that's a privilege it's a privileged position. So the, the ability for you to limit yourself and not be overwhelmed by hundreds of different things is like, is a wealthy people preoccupation. It's not the preoccupation of a person who has to survive day by day, you know, and they don't have the time. Their mind is like so occupied by so many different things of survival. They don't have the time to take a break or put a limit. So all these forces come from the outside and and they can't limit it. That's why also in my book, I emphasize that this project of uh, simplicity of self-limitation, it has to be a collective one. It's like a collective gain of the right to live simply. It's not, oh, you should live simply, you know. Go tell that to my neighbor that has been left, you know, without a salary, uh, with a lockdown, and, you know, they have to worry on the day in, day out how they're going to, put food in their table. I can't tell them to like just relax and be be simple, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because when I read the book, I didn't take away from it that we're all going to be like chilling. Yeah. You know, it was more of a, which again, I think is like a very Western way of thinking about it, right? That either you're mm-hmm. living a life of work, which is some sort of productivity or you're living a life of leisure, you know, where you can just, mm-hmm. you know, sit on a beach or sit out on a deck and mm-hmm. wax philosophical all, all day. And what I got was actually something far more alive mm-hmm. and abundant mm-hmm. than this discourse of either drudgery, mm-hmm. mechanical labor, or mm-hmm. doing nothing at all. And yeah. I think, you know, I, I would love to kind of use this idea of who can and who can't, this notion of privilege that you brought up, because at the beginning of our conversation and also in the book, you talk about this notion that poverty is a manifestation of scarcity or it's presented that way to kind of keep that paradoxical argument going. That, you know, if we were to grow more and produce more and our society would get more wealthy, then we would get more money and then people would have more money and they would be less poverty. But then we see, obviously, that has not been the case as mm-hmm. as wealth and kind of the collective resources of the planet have now fallen into fewer 
and fewer hands. Mm-hmm. And the argument of the commons that you brought up in a previous statement, you know, we're trying to resurface this, those ideas. So I want to talk about that manifestation of scarcity mm-hmm. relative to these ideas that we're addressing, because I want to get us to a more collective type of argument. So I want to get some of your thoughts around how we, how we challenge that, mm-hmm. that notion of, of scarcity. Yeah. The first one is to, under- to understand that, and this is what I'm trying to do with the book, to understand that this notion of scarcity is a very ideological one. It's not something real out there that it's our uh, human predicament, because that's what economists um, have tried to convince us. And I mean, even if you don't study economics, the idea arrives to you through through popular culture or through media and political discussions. No? So there is the idea, and there has ever been the idea that we don't have enough for everyone, you know. So some people are poor because we don't have enough, so we need to produce more. So there is this idea of scarcity and growth. And in the book, I argue that this idea emerges at the very beginning of capitalism, and it emerges at the very moment that capitalism starts producing an unprecedented amount of goods. So there is a lot of wealth, not a lot from our eyes today, but at that time it was like something unprecedented. What uh, the amount of wealth that started being produced in uh, England, that it's the case I'm looking at at the 18th century and the 19th century. No? So then the question was, how is it that we still have poor people when we start producing that much? No? And the progressives on one hand said, yes, we are producing enough and if we redistribute it, no one will have to be poor anymore. No? And then the, the conservative and the reactionaries, which is the ones I visit through the figure of uh, Malthus, who is an interesting figure because he was a priest, but he was also the first professional economist. So it's this transition from religion to the modern, what I call the modern religion, which is a religion of growth. And the priests are the economists, if we want to use the metaphor. But Malthus is truly, is not just a metaphor. He's a priest who is also an economist. <laughs> and he's the first one who, who makes this argument. And he says, you know what? Uh, we don't have enough and we will never have enough because if you give enough to everyone, then they're just going to have uh, sex uh, because um, sex is the naturalistic, then they're going to have too many children, and then again, we won't have enough. So we can never have enough, because we can always have more children than what we have. And God actually wants us to be this way. He has made it on purpose difficult for us, he argued. He didn't want to give us a planet that is abandoned, and then we would take our time and, uh, and enjoy ourselves. But he made it difficult for us, because God wants from us to multiply and populate the earth. So he made it difficult for us so that we keep working as hard as possible in order to feed our children and not have them die. So it's a constant process of reducing more in order to have more children or in order to satisfy more needs, you might say today. It's never enough and we need to produce more and more and more and we can never resolve poverty. Now, that was a very particular religious idea. It was a Protestant idea and it was an idea that was directly linked to capitalism because these religious ideas were not the dominant ones before in the Catholic Church, for example. I had an interesting conversation a few days ago with people that found my book interesting, and they are Catholic priests and Buddhist monks. So it was, <laughs> was it, and they told me that, yes, this idea is like, it was a very particular Protestant idea of the time, but there was also always the Franciscan idea, for example, the current Pope represents that more. That I was like, no, you know, there is abundance. Uh, God has given us a, an abundant planet, you know, and we can simplify and live a modest life and enjoy this abundance. And that was not only Christian, it was Buddhist, it was Eastern, 
all traditions. Uh, it was African. There is the Ubuntu that we enjoy things together. So in all in all civilizations and traditions, you you will find this basic wisdom. You know that the planet is fine, and as long as we limit ourselves and share together, we can have enough. For me, that's that has been always historically. That has been always the response we have to scarcity. Once you start thinking this way, there is no scarcity. You know. If you can limit yourself and what you feel together with others and you feel that what you have enough, scarcity is not an issue, is not a concept, doesn't exist. And in my book, I take the work of an anthropologist who has worked with hunter-gatherers tribes in the Congo Basin. And I talked to him and he told me, look, what you're talking about here directly reflects what I've observed there in the 20 years I've lived with hunter-gatherers. For them, they never think in terms of scarcity. You know, they live very simple lives. They live very egalitarian lives and they trust that the environment is abundant. So they never think that we don't have enough. And precisely because they think in this way, scarcity doesn't exist for them. They continue living simple lives and they don't overexploit their forests, you know. Uh, the moment this shifts is when? When the NGOs come and uh, the logging companies come and they say, no, there are not enough trees, you know. The NGOs, the environmental NGOs, because it's a protected area and there are not enough trees. The logging companies, because they want to log them. And, you know, so there, there is this, Western and capitalist logic of scarcity that arrives. And then it's about limits, it's about managing the forest and producing more trees, etc., etc., you know. So for me, the only way we can respond uh, to this notion of scarcity is the way that uh, all civilizations have known in their skin, you know, which is uh, by a different ethic and a different collective ethic and institutions of uh, moderation, of self-limitation, of simplicity by sharing. And I want to talk a little bit about because I've been noticing a trend in trying to wrestle with what is real, so to speak. And I'm not going to do the yeah. air quotes, but people can kind of hear air quotes in my voice. Because we've been used to, you know, hard, tangible assets to a certain extent. You know, as we think about our economic life, I'm going to buy this physical object. We're drilling for oil. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're kind of pulling things out of the ground. And what I've noticed in over the past, I guess, couple of years with introducing digital assets and cryptocurrencies and, you know, there was an article in, in the New York Times just yesterday or maybe the day before talking about how artists like musicians and, you know, so-called influencers and stuff like that are parceling off notions of like what they're going to do during the day. So I'm paraphrasing really quickly, but they're like, they have some sort of app. I don't remember its name, but it uses, it creates like this sort of exchange where you can bid for the ability to tell your favorite influencer what to wear that day or where to go or who to talk to. And Mm -hmm. we've always heard this popular notion that, oh, I don't want to buy things. I want to buy experiences, right? So we're kind of moving into this intangible Mm. way of thinking about our assets. And when I thought about that, I thought about the limits that we're discussing right now. That is this another challenge? Because if things aren't real, quote unquote, Mm. they have no limit in a way, right? Like I'm not an expert on crypto, but this notion that like people can like sell gifts and sell digital albums that don't really exist anywhere. It's a weird thing. I haven't really quite figured it out myself, but um, it seems like we're moving into this space that feels odd. 
like my spidey sense is tingling <laughs> for lack of a better metaphor. So it might not have bubbled up for your maybe it has, but I'm just curious how you think about that idea of intangibility, realness, as we're talking about limits. Yeah, there are many things to unpack there. I mean, one thing is that I think uh, even in terms of experiences, limiting the experiences to something that they can become meaningful remains important. So let's say the ethic of self-limitation, I don't see it being fundamentally changed uh, by the idea of uh, most of our consumption uh, being in terms of experiences rather than physical goods, no? Now, in terms of the ecological dimension of what you're saying, there is a big debate. So yes, you will hear economists, when I talk about that there are limits, to, there should be limits to growth, and that it's not possible to keep growing the economy without uh, destroying the planet, you know, and without using more and more energy, which means makes climate change more and more difficult to, to handle. So the counter argument there is like, uh, you don't, that I miss the, the fact that we are indeed moving to experiences that they are not physical anymore. So the economy can grow indefinitely through these immaterial experiences. The thing is, uh, it's not true. I mean, these immaterial experiences have a very material basis. And I'm not talking about only about the servers, but I mean, on the one hand, there are the servers that they are powering all this. So cryptocurrencies, for example, is something that by design uh, has a very physical dimension in terms of the energy consumed, no? But also other things. So there are studies that they have tried to compare the energy and resource requirements of digital music versus uh, CDs we were using before. And at the end, there is not a big difference. And there is not a big difference because you can think that now it's so easy. Like, for example, now I hear my music through YouTube, you know, I can have YouTube playing the whole day long. So I have an incredible discography right now that I could never imagine when I was collecting albums and CDs, you know. Uh, It is much more immaterial. If I just had like my 100 CDs as YouTube... (laughs) Yes, it could be a little bit immaterial, but right now YouTube is is unlimited and infinite and keeps playing and keeps playing for billions of people, you know, so you can imagine the materiality of all this consumption. So it's not true that these uh, experiences are immaterial, although they might feel immaterial, but it's because we don't see it and that's the worrying aspect. It's the aspect that some people, especially more privileged people in our parts of the world, might have the capacity to disassociate themselves from the physical world, and then the physical world doesn't exist anymore for the reality. So you don't have the factory anymore around the corner, which is contaminating, and and you see it, and you have like the neighbor who works in the factory, and you understand the whole physical production process. But suddenly, you know, yes, you are in front of your computer the whole day in lockdown. Everything seems immaterial, but you know there is there is a server somewhere that is producing the information you are using and there is a, a power f- factory using coal somewhere else producing the energy for the server and there is also a coal miner who takes the coal out of the earth it's just that you are completely disassociated from any of that and you think you live in matrix no so the, the analogy with the movie matrix is pretty good because you know you think you're living the you think that's how life is but behind it there is another reality Absolutely. And I think those stories become more and more popular because perhaps they kind of speak to something that we we feel, as they say in the movie, but can't quite know. And I want to give you an opportunity because I think you made a good point, as you mentioned, lockdown, because we're all in, in still in various phases of dealing with COVID and the pandemic. And 
I'm curious if you found that this moment that we've been in, as it has changed fundamentally the way in which we have lived our lives in many cases, done our business, has it made any sort of change in how we think about degrowth? Because I remember maybe about a year ago, this at around the same time as people were going into lockdown, there was all these sort of romantic notions that the earth was coming back because we're not moving around as much and the natural world is blossoming due to, you know, us not flying and tr- global transport being paused. And it was a, um, people could see the possibilities of us living a simpler life, even with kind of this shadow over it with COVID. Do you think that that provided perhaps a livable, uh, a template that people could get their head around because they experienced a bit of it? Or am I thinking about that in the wrong way? Because I don't want to make it sound like COVID was good. (laughs) <laughs> or is good because obviously it yeah is. that's a problem yeah that's a problem it's a, yeah it is a terrible thing and it has obviously hurt people who have the least the most yeah that's the problem that's the problem always with uh, with linking this way but I think first of all we have to see that COVID was a particular way we experienced that so we experienced it as a health and epidemic and then what we had to do was also to reduce our sociality you know which is quite painful. And it's, it, you see, the bad side of it, it's quite scary that we have done that and we might start getting used to that. I was discussing this with my father, who is a pensioner, and he lives in Greece while I live in Barcelona. And he was telling me, I've used, you know, I have now new routines and I pass the whole day on my own and I'm fine, you know. He lives in an island also, so he has a little bit contact with nature. He says, I'm fine. He doesn't see anyone. And he says, I go on Facebook, I write my comments there, you know, then I, I read the book. You know, then I look at the garden, I, I work with the garden, and my life is fine. But that's that's a scary that's a scary prospect now that we all get used to that. Now, on the other hand, we have to see that there are some positive lessons of, or some positive aspects that we can see out of this crisis. Like one positive thing I see is that we have experienced that uh, we can change our routines uh, drastically and it's not the end of the world, you know, like we can... Yeah, it's like something that if if you told me one and a half years ago that I would live like that, I, you know, I, I was panicking. When COVID started, I was panicking. I couldn't sleep. Once the lockdowns and everything started, uh, still stressed, but it's manageable, you know, and you change your routines quite quickly and you find new ways of, of interacting in a difficult situation. And we have to think that in terms of climate change or in terms of getting our act together and acting decisively on climate change, we will not have to socially distance ourselves. On the contrary, we would have to do many more things together and common and cooperatively. So that's not what the problem is going to be there. But yes, we would have to change dramatically certain routines. So the positive aspect I keep from that, if we think seriously about a decisive reaction to, to climate change, is that we can't change our routines from one day to the other uh, drastically. And we adapt, you know, and it's not the end of the world. So things that they seem the end of the world, they they are not the end of the world. There are things that they are the end of the world, but these are not one of them, like not being able to fly or not being able to constantly use your car or etc. are things to which we adapt and we can adapt quite easily. Yes, and that's what I can say, something we can keep in mind if we want to think about uh, the growth in the future, you know. How do we start from that? that? That I think it's a common sense people right now now the other thing is that all this again it's a collective and it depends on the collective action so it depends on whether the government and your representatives 
can organize a collective action where they take care of you, you know, and you don't feel you're like on your own and you're going to die out of hunger in a few days, you know, on a lockdown. So the other part that is super decisive is that the institutions can manage this transition period and can manage a slower economy and can manage redistributing resources from there that they are superfluous given the lockdown or given climate mitigation to where they are needed. So there, there I think it's the important part. And this is what I try to address with my more ecological economic type of work on degrowth. It's like, how do we change that institutions? What type of policies? What type of politics? Uh, because if we just pass it to the individual, like, oh, you have to adapt and you will survive. It's obvious that with the lockdowns, it was obvious that this was not possible unless the government supported you when you lost your job or when you didn't have to work. You couldn't stay home uh, in lockdown and not do anything, no? You needed some support and you needed some economic opportunities to work and make a living that they were maintaining social distancing, you know? So there we need collective action, collective action of organizing this transition. Yeah, collective action is the key in, in moving away from this sort of individual way of thinking about things. You know, they say here that for some folks, it's individual action when it comes to doing social good, but it's collective when it comes to giving those who have wealth more opportunities and more resources. I'm keeping an eye on the time because I know I want to, I don't want to keep you away from your family for too much longer. And before I get to the final two segments of the show, I want to ask one other question specifically about degrowth and as a function of hope for a better future. And I'm loath to use words like optimistic or pessimistic because I feel they are too simple. Because people do that to me all the time. They'd be like, are you optimistic for the future? And I'm like, what does that mean? Right? Um, but I think hope is, it's a word that has come to be flimsy. But I have a lot of people, particularly a woman who's a recent guest on the show and a longtime friend, um, Lena Servastova, who wrote a recent essay, reclaiming hope as something that is an active and vital way in which we do work that is rooted in justice. And I've tried to think about the climate issues of poverty as really justice-rooted issues. And degrowth as a function of fitting into that construct a little bit, combining notions of hope, of justice. Do you see the imagination required to create a world based on the principles of degrowth as being really an act that is hopeful in the most active sense rather than less hopeful for our futures. Yeah, I think it's very hopeful and, uh, and optimistic in the sense that it counts that we can change and do something. We can change collectively in a way that it's not, we are not organizing for a project of expansion or colonization or war, which is the typical way Western Anglo civilization has come to think about things. That's why now you hear war on climate. We have to declare a war on climate. So you always have to declare a war against something and then beat it, you know, to death. Yeah. War on terror, war on drugs. War on terror, yeah, it's, everything is a war. So the growth is like, no, we don't need to launch a war. We have to retreat, you know, and retreat in a in an organized and peaceful and collective and, and mutual way. In that sense, it is very optimistic because it counts that we can do something that hasn't been done in the 300 years of 400 years that we have capitalism. Uh, it is very optimistic because it thinks that it hopes that we can defeat the interests that are going to stand in the way of that. 
And it is optimistic because it is a little bit of the optimism of imagine, you know, John Lennon's imagine. Imagine we can live together simply and well, you know, together. So in that sense, there is an element of utopianism to that. But uh, the way I understand utopianism is not... Um, I think all political ideas are utopian. Uh, the conservative too, no? There is the utopia of a free market where people just go there and they exchange things and everyone is happy, you know? So all these are utopias. And I think utopias are mobilizing for doing things within the realities and very often the dystopias that we come to live in. So I, I find utopias are something mobilizing for doing things differently than we would do them. These utopias didn't exist and we just accepted a realism of things are the way they are and they're going to stay the same forever. So in that sense, I work with some proposals that one might say they're utopians, but to push the envelope of thinking of what is possible and what we can do. Yeah, I want to push those envelopes as much as possible. I love the work and the thinking, and that's why we're here. So I think that's a, a perfect way to kind of end that piece and do the last two segments of the show. The first one being off the dome, where I just ask like a couple of quick questions, a few quick questions, and you just give me the first response that comes to mind or longer response. It's not going to be a yes or no question. Yeah. And the first one is, as an ecological economist, as economists in general, we all have an idea of economists when we think of them um, and mm-hmm. the language that they use. If you can make economists stop doing one thing, what would that one thing be? Hire economists like themselves <laughs> in, their, in their university departments because they're very ideologically controlled. That's a really good one, actually. <laughs> Well, that's the central one. I mean, they keep hiring people. They say, yes, economics is going to change, but they keep hiring like people who ideologically are exactly in their line and they kill whatever dissent is. They kick people with dissenting ideas. Yeah, you know, once you said that, I was like, God damn, that's really like (laughs) quick, (laughs) brilliant. I always think of economists as like these particular schools of thought, right? Like, so it's like they're literally gathering other people like a posse. Just like themselves, they're like yeah, a crew, yeah, they're like yeah. Wu-Tang. Yeah, yeah, they are like that. And I mean, I, when I studied, I saw it, you know, like the moment you were like a little bit descending, you knew you didn't have a place there. So they make it very clear to you that you have to obey if you want to raise up. It is like the church, in the bad sense of a church. Wow, that's, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day. <laughs> that's <laughs> a good one. Okay, my second one is... When we think about limits, and this is a little tongue-in-cheek because I, I know you take this and I take it far more seriously than this, and it's not about denying things. But in the spirit of the game, what is the hardest fun thing for you to limit? Hardest fun thing? That's a good one. It's not the flying per se, so I don't enjoy flying. Actually, it is easy for me to limit flying because I'm afraid <laughs> So it's not the ecological concern. It's not the one the first that comes to my mind. Is that every time that the plane is landing or moving, I, I get scared and I get more and more scared as I grow up, which I think it means I'm getting more scared that the end is, is, is near. Yes, but I, I like traveling. So it is one thing, yes, that yeah, I like traveling, going to new places. And I think if we consider the, the flying implications of that, the carbon implications, one that we have to limit us. Yeah, it's I'm like you. I love to get to the place, but the way there is <laughs> always rife with fear. <laughs> yeah. 
he, even though I, I know I'm going to get there, I'm always like the minute I'm cool. If the plane is just in the air and not moving, I'm watching my movie, yeah. got a little drink, yeah. but the yeah, minute yeah, yeah. it does like one of these, <laughs> my heart is through my chest. Yeah. <laughs> so we share that one. And this is my final off the dome. You know, obviously we're, we're in this period of, of self-reflection and you strike me as a, as a person who obviously thinks deeply about many things. What is the one skill you wish you can instantly learn? Uh, music, uh, composing songs, composing music. I think also the ideas that we discuss, I really believe in the power of arts to convey them, you know? So in my book, somehow I ended up with the arts while I wasn't thinking. So there was the metaphor of the piano, and then it was the comparison between the ancient Athenian tragedy and its structure and the Hollywood movie plot, no? So somehow I ended up with the arts without thinking about it. But right now, I have rediscovered piano that I had left. And I say the story also in the book. I had left it for many years. And now I start playing piano again. And I start also writing songs in Greek. So I'm trying to write some pop songs and writing lyrics. But I would like someone who could help me improve that, you know, and uh, improve the songs and also get the lyrics right. Because there are always a few words that you can't get right. And then I get stuck there. So I don't know how to finish a song. Yeah, it's um people who know me know I'm a I'm a music fanatic and I think music it's one of the things that really makes living this life worth it. Yeah. In in the sense that when I hear cuz when you were talking about limits and you do the analogy about the piano player I thought about like free jazz for example, right? Like it was supposed mm-hmm. to be this unfettered use of jazz and we're just going to go out there and do whatever we want. And a lot of musicians like I think about someone like Prince, I think he said that he hated these analogies that made it seem like what he was doing was unfettered hmm. because he was like, it's hard for me to do what I do within the confines in which I do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, he's one of the, I argue he's the one of the greatest, if not the greatest musician talent we've ever seen. So mm-hmm. I love these analogies of music. And I, I look at someone who writes a beautiful song and I'm like, how did you do that? Right. Yeah. Like given yeah. that we're using the same words, we're kind of all have the same notes, yeah. but you made something that I could hear and, and feel like I've never heard it before. Yes. It's, an, it's an amazing thing. We got to have a whole nother show about music and <laughs> yeah. your piano yeah. and all that good stuff. I want to get to the drop and the drop is just a, I call them in these intellectual morsels that we share with our listeners and you know, I have a drop. I hope you have a drop ready. And mm-hmm. do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Drops can be anything. doesn't matter what it is. So I have to drop also? Yes. You have, ah, you have a, a, recommend, yeah, a recommendation. It, it, can, it can be anything. It could be anything at all. I'll do mine ah, while okay. you think yes, about yes, yours. Yes, yes, you asked me that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, tell me. So I'll, I'll do mine. And it's a book that I actually haven't started yet, but I'm going to recommend it anyway because I just got it last week and I was really excited to get it. And the book is called We Do This Till We Free Us. And it's about the work of around abolition. Mm-hmm. And it's written by a woman named Mariam Kaba, who is funny. Every time I say her name, I struggle with it, not because of the pronunciation, but because I know her on Twitter by her Twitter handle, which is Prison Culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's so funny. I see her talking about the book and getting ready to launch the book. And when people started talking about it with her actual name, I was like, who the hell is this? Because I only know her as prison culture. Like it's such a, a one of those Twitter handles that I remember so plainly. But the book is here, like it's right next to me. And I'm really excited to start reading it because I think these ideas around abolition and how we 
drive a world toward justice is very much like this conversation, like it's taking words and things that we think about in one context and using them in another. So again, it's called We Do This Till We Free Us, Miriam Kaba or Prison Culture on Twitter. Mm. And that's my drop. So Okay. I had another drop, but now that... <laughs> it could be anything. It doesn't need to be like something... I had a book, so I'm going to say quickly, the book is The Dispossessed of Ursula Le Guin, that for me is the best science fiction that deals with these issues. And uh, in order not to... To spoil it, you can read also in my book how it was uh, formative for me of thinking about limits. But my drop will be a song uh, by a Brazilian singer, well-known Brazilian singer, Caetano Veloso, that uh, I've been listening the last days. <laughs> so it's it's very fresh on me, but it's it's an amazing song that I know for years. But, you know, there are some songs that suddenly appear to you and then you get back to them, you know. Like I was going with my twin daughters, I was giving them a walk and then suddenly I started singing the song. And I said, yeah, I want to hear that again. And then I got obsessed with it for a few days. So it's called Umindio, which means a, an Indian. And um, you can find it on YouTube. There are two live versions of it. One of Caetano Veloso in his 60s, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But I also saw him play in San Francisco. It was an amazing concert. And then there is also one that he's uh, younger, like in his 40s. And they are both amazing uh, live performances. And in the song, um, he talks about... Um, the last Indian tribe that it's rooted out of the Amazon. So it's quite contemporary because still the policies of these crazy democratic dictators we have, like Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is uh, destroying the Amazon and has let uh, COVID rampage their uh, indigenous people uh, and killing them at numbers uh, much worse than the rest of Brazil, which is much worse than the rest of the world. But I think it's, it is an intentional genocidal project to clear the land for for his landlord to go in. And the song is a little bit of, let's say, a more positive uh, side to it. And it's Caetano Veloso saying, an Indian, the last Indian uh, who went up in the sky and is coming back. He will come back and uh, the natives will come back and take the place, you know. And he's saying it poetically and uh, the music is great. Yeah, he's such a brilliant artist. There's so much beautiful music and culture coming out of Brazil. And I, I agree with you, culture is going to lead the way in this conversation. Those are great drops. See, right off the top, and it, it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and it was perfect. You know, I really want to thank you for, for being on the deep dive with me. This was as good a conversation as I could have imagined. I'm starting my day here in New York because, you know, you're in, in Barcelona, I'm here in Brooklyn. So we're six hours apart and I couldn't think of a better way to start my Thursday than with this conversation. So I want to really thank you for being on the deep dive with me. Thank you, Philip. It was a great conversation. I also really enjoyed it. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.